Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. love the idea we always say if you haven't been here before we always say you're here on your own terms but I slightly love the idea that this week we throw that out the window and say we're not leaving until somebody offers to help with kids so come on who's it going to be um it is of course it's kind of it's been our mantra as we start this again to just remember that this is going to be slow that this is going to be a lot of us piecing things back together again and I know that it does feel a bit weird rattling a little in this big space as we sort of distance ourselves and learn how to be a church together again Um, But we are very, very glad that you're here. Just to be a little bit self-related for a moment um, and not to flatter you in a way that, you know, isn't sincere. But you're a lot nicer to talk to than the back of an iPhone. You really are. Um, You know, if you give me any sort of feedback, any kind of eye contact, any kind of whimper of laughter, it's a lot better than the iPhone does. We are kind of clear really in our task over the next weeks and months and that is that we just need to help you have faith again and I don't mean the faith that you're justified by and I don't mean that I want to whip you up into some kind of frenzy of faith um not it's not really an emotional thing that I'm talking about I'm just talking about the the sense of mature steadfast storm weathering faith in the goodness of God, the knowledge of who he is. I think it's probably safe to assume that a few of us are running a little bit low in that tank. I suppose what therefore is perfectly obvious is that we need to kind of figure out um, that the things that we're trying to have faith in are things that we can have faith in. So let my oldest daughter tell you about this. When Evie was four and starting school, Uh, for the first time. She spent uh, a sort of a strange amount of time, a strange amount of strength of feeling obsessing over certain aspects of that for a whole summer. And I think we sort of assumed it's because she was just extremely extroverted and kind of couldn't wait to graduate to big girl status of of school starting. But she was particularly excited about the day that we had planned where we would go to the school office and collect the the uniform that she was going to wear. And the day arrived and I actually ended up leaving her at home uh, and sneaking out with, um, with Ed and the baby and just, you know, running out to, to pick this up myself. But I will never forget the moment that I arrived home and saw her run to me, her face slowly falling in its excitement, grabbing the shopper that had within it a, its gorgeous little kind of gingham, navy blue smock, like an artist smock, that's what they were, grabbing the shopper from my hands and poking her little curly head inside it and then going... That's not a new school unicorn. (laughs) Yeah. And I will never really recover from the crushing pain that descended on her face because there really wasn't anything I could do to reframe it. 
you know? This was real-life pain she was feeling. This was a smock, not a unicorn. Um, and I wonder if we just need to, when we're talking about refilling our faith tank, whether we just want to start by sort of reminding ourselves exactly what it is that we're talking about. We're talking about faith in Jesus, in his power, in what he's already done, in what he feels about you, in what he feels for everyone else, in what he feels about everything that has happened this year, all of it, in, the, in faith in what he says about what your life is for, faith in his promises, faith in his goodness. We have to know who we have faith in and what he looks like. So we're doing this uh, little series on um, the moments that his, the disciples meet Jesus again after he's been resurrected um, before he ascends to heaven. And this morning, we're looking at the one where he meets the two unknown disciples on the road to Emmaus. These guys are in their own way grieving the unicorn that Jesus has not turned out to be. I'd like to think I'm the first person that's ever compared Jesus to a smock. Um, it's from Luke 24, 13 to 35. Now the same day, meaning Resurrection Day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Notice uh, the deliberate wording here. They call Jesus of Nazareth a prophet, not the, uh, the Messiah, despite everything that he's told them, despite everything um, that the women's account, that he, what the angels have said, implies about him being the Messiah, they still do not believe, which explains Jesus' response a little bit. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All of the scriptures here is very deliberately phrased. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. The whole of the story of God and his relationship with his people pointed to this moment. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But, he urged, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. 
And that's an interesting beat, actually, because there's nothing in the Greek to imply that Jesus wasn't genuinely going to carry on with his journey. But it's like he sensed something of their faith, some whisper of it, um, of these two unknown disciples in their strong urges for him to stay. God responds to faith. Big faith, little faith, shreds of faith, desperate, hanging on to his cloak faith, hanging on by our fingernails faith. Faith is the magic with God. He loves it and he responds to it. And this morning, I believe he wants to give us more of it. So instead of continuing on, Jesus uh, went in to eat with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Let's just take a moment again to consider quite how crushed Jesus' followers would have been in this moment. This oppressed people under rule of foreign invaders waiting and waiting generation after generation for their time, their conquering hero promised from the days of old. That's who they believed Jesus was, who they probably believed he was right until the moment on the cross when he took his last breath and the sky went black. They'd probably have been expecting him to climb down from the cross and win. And now Jesus was not the great rescuer after all, they must have said. But notice they don't say the Roman Empire murdered him. They don't say the disgusting, cruel, adulterous, idolatrous, imperial invader did it. They say our leaders, our people, the leaders of us, the law keepers, the promise bearers, us. I know that a lot of us have had to manage quite incredible disappointments this year. Disappointment in our leaders, in the institutions we may have put faith in before, maybe in family members, in friends, in careers or opportunities, other things that we had had faith in. Maybe this current beat, the one where the women reporting to have seen Jesus alive and the other disciples confirming the empty grave, Maybe it isn't too difficult to, for us to imagine that Cleopas and his companion just found it too hard to believe. To have faith again after it has been dashed is one of the bravest endeavors human, humans can take, is it not? These two are not convinced. The Greek use suggests that they were arguing among themselves as they discussed it. They doubted, they questioned, they fight amongst themselves. And most importantly, they don't recognize Jesus. The verb used when it says that they were kept from recognizing it is passive, which most commentators agree implies that there was something deliberate about this on God's part, that Jesus' identity was somehow deliberately hidden from them. 
Perhaps it was because they, he needed them to hear the message that Jesus had for them uh, without being distracted by this incredible revelation that he was alive. Perhaps it's just true that sometimes we don't learn things the way that we would like to. I suppose the question I'm asking us this morning is, would we recognize Jesus? Would we recognize his face, the sound of his voice? It's, it's not completely a fair question because, of course, they had known Jesus' human face and Jesus' human voice, and we don't. I am still actively deconstructing Robert Powell's Jesus from my mind. I actually don't know if Jesus of Nazareth made it over here, the 1977 Robert Zeffirelli miniseries. It really did the rounds in the church in the UK in the 80s. Um, it was the kind of thing that like Friday night youth clubs would get together to watch and actually whole churches. The first time I saw it was about six um, and our whole church had got together in a school hall to watch it. Um, it had uh, quite an um, impressive all-star cast. Laurence Olivier, Christopher Plummer, Anne Bancroft, Ian McShane, all the greats. Um, and a British actor named Robert Powell, who you may know in the starring role. You may notice that all of those uh, names were white European names playing Palestinian Jews. Mm -hmm. It's funny, but it's also really, really important for us to realize quite how distorted our 21st century lens of the patriarchal, white capitalist and imperialist agenda is. Is it not? Let's do everything we can at all turns to rid ourselves of that. I actually find it very annoying because I know that Jesus doesn't look like Robert Powell, but that's who pops into my head in his white robe and his long beard and his shining blue eyes. Jesus had brown skin. Jesus had brown eyes. Jesus probably had short hair and a short beard. He was probably shorter than our average American contemporary heights. He was probably had missing teeth. He probably had a very rugged physical appearance because he'd worked very hard for the first 30 years of his life. But, of course, I don't really mean what, when I ask you what does Jesus look like, what are his physical characteristics, although it is important for us to wonder those things from time to time. When I say, what does he look like and what does he sound like, it's more like, what does it feel like to you to speak to him, to be around him? I think that uh, early December was probably, our, or November rather, was probably our lowest point for Ed and I. Um, you know, that, that beat where there was lots going on in the world, but... Um, we were, in terms of Los Angeles, we were really realizing that spring was going to be our best hope for things, you know, getting back to normal. COVID numbers were really, really through the roof at that point in the city. And um, we also had some other personal difficulties going on and online church was online church. And Alice, who was kind of our, our really our, our third wheel, if that's a thing, in many ways, she'd come over here with us and she'd really become part of our, the family and she'd done all of this with us. I know a lot of you know her. Um, was moving home, which was the right thing, but it was so painful, and we were really grieving that. And we had no building, and we had no prospects of a building, and we had no prospects of being able to do this together again. And Ed and I were asking ourselves some very big questions about what on earth we were doing here, and I was really feeling a pretty all-pervading, heavy-crushing weight of the sense that I was letting everyone down. And um, one day, we were on a Zoom call, call with a very wise old friend, who um, had graciously listened to me lay all of that stuff out, really go for it, really get into the nitty-gritty of all the stuff I was finding really hard. 
And he listened and he didn't interrupt and I got to the end and he kind of just, you know, wow, Hannah, what do you think Jesus is saying about all of that? Which I know that you would like to think would be something that we would ask ourselves, but I don't think it had been for quite a long time. And it was momentary, this thing that shifted for me. this moment that I had of recognizing Jesus again. I had a picture come into my mind in just a flash, but it's the kind of way that I've learned that the Holy Spirit speaks to me. And the picture that I saw, and forgive the excessive levels of drama of this, get over it, imagine living with me. I was uh, at the helm of an enormous fishing boat, like a big, you know, modern day one. Um, And in the middle of a massive storm, like a proper squall, like storm storm. And I was all panicked and doing this and I looked across and Jesus was there, not Robert Powell, Jesus. Um, And his face was just calm and loving. And there was obvious tones of the Mark 4 calming the storm story when the the disciples cry out like, you're not going to save us. Um, But it just said, oh Hannah, all that stuff isn't important. I just love you so much. And I don't want to overstate it um, because the next few months were rubbish and my fear and anxiety definitely didn't go away. But what do I think that Jesus thinks about this is a question I can ask myself every single day in every single moment of fear and anxiety. And it's not that the things that I feel fear and anxiety over that don't matter to him when he says, don't worry about that stuff. It's just that his love for me, his care and his kindness, they're just a whole lot bigger. What does Jesus' face look like to you? Is it a human face? Is it kind? Is it understanding? Is it powerful? Might it be a face standing in the middle of a crowd a crowd that is furious and jeering and spitting on him, who believe they're completely right. Might it be a face that's frightened but not pathetic and not a victim, a willing sacrifice, a face not in any way concerned with the fact that he was right, because he was so right all along. But the human face of God who knows what it's like, who knows how much it hurts, how badly we need him to take it from us. To hear over and over and over again, my precious child, it's you, the lost one, that I'm here for. Because to Jesus, somehow, some unthinkably how, gleaming, perfect, Godness made man, the creator in the middle of the thing that he made. What matters most is that what has been lost is found. What has been broken is made whole. And the one that does not know and cannot feel it for all the woes and worries is reminded she is loved. There's so much rightness in the air at the minute, isn't there? Have you ever known so many people to be so sure of how right they are that 
this is the way it must be and that way it must be cancelled, that these people are awful, that we're the right ones about everything. There's just so much indignation, isn't there? It's very tiring. Of course, rightness, of course, truth and justice are at God's heart. When John says Jesus is the way and the truth, he means it. It's important. But in God's economy, being right about what's true, as if we could ever agree on it anyway, is not as important as grace. It's not as important as forgiveness and love and finding the lost ones. Truth doesn't come as a distant second in the race. It's not even in the same race. It's not playing the same sport. Ultimately, being right isn't the answer. Grace is the only answer we have. Enough entirely unconnected people have said or written the same thing to me or in my hearing in the last two weeks by email in essays I've read on Twitter that I'm pretty sure it feels like a bit, a bit of a prophetic word for this moment. You may have heard it before. It's this. The Christian life is very simple. Love Jesus and love each other. These two disciples in the passage that we read about this morning, they are the early church. This whole thing happened because something happened to these two squabbling, unbelieving unicorn hunters that took them from here to the axe picture of, of believers together having everything in common, Hellenists and Hebrews, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free.
in a cultural moment for them where division was entrenched. Division was there and real and powerful and in the way easily as much to them as they are to us. So when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, it says, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Bread, obviously, has a special meaning to the Hebrews, if you think about manna in the wilderness and the 12 breads uh, broken and shared in the temple. And Jesus has already told them that he is the true bread, the bread of life, the lasting eternal sustenance that they need. And the Jewish dinner table um, was, had a special significance to them, uh, lots more meaning perhaps than it does to us. Eating was fellowship. It's where they worship, it's where they discuss the word together. In fact, in the Greek, the words fellowship and breaking of bread are linked as simultaneous activities. Luke makes the intimacy of table fellowship a theme throughout his gospel and the book of Acts. Big things happen around the table as bread is broken. And when Jesus does it here, just like that, they see who he is. Loving each other is, in reality, no more complicated for us than it ever has been before. But we do seem to have lost a few of the mechanisms that make it easier. I mean, COVID notwithstanding. The simple act of sitting around a table together. Can you imagine right now doing that with insert the name of the person that you find it most difficult to love right now. Can you imagine reaching across the table to hand them a slice of whatever you make, fresh sourdough? I know that church in America in 2021, post-truth, post-Trump, post-Floyd, post-COVID, feels like a a different time, a special time requiring special measures. But we only have one measure. It's Jesus. It's gathering together around his name, his ways. And it's the same as it always has been, really. Because of what Jesus has done, his body, his blood, we are given the resources to transcend the boundaries the walls, however unscalable they may feel, as impossible a thought as that may be. The resources and the call, whatever has gone down this year, whatever is still to come, whatever ways we may feel wounded, we can come together as one. We do not have the liberty to hate. We do not have the right to say, my way is better than yours. We are called to be the bridge. We are called to be the way in the middle, within the church and outside of it. We're called to love God and each other. We're going to take communion as we end now. You will find a fiddly little COVID-safe pot of grape syrup and a wafer of questionable texture that's difficult to open on the shelf in front of you. You're welcome. As we break bread together now, as we do this remembering what Jesus has done and who he is 
and what he looks like. Can I challenge you? I know that we're not all in this room together, but to imagine that the people or person or collective group that you find it most difficult to imagine being called to be one with are doing this with you, are sharing in the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus together.